Morning, y'all. Uh, guys, my name is Taylor. I'm the student pastor here. For those of you that I haven't met, um, I'm excited to be up here this morning to get to hang out with y'all for a little bit. Um, I actually have to start off this morning with a, a confession, though, if you'll honor me in that. I've got to share something with you. Um, we did a mission trip this past week with our middle schoolers where we went to Cornerstone, uh, our partners over there, and served in their homeless ministry. So we served in their food pantry, served some food to some of the homeless people that Cornerstone serves. And it was awesome. We had a lot of fun. Um, But while we were on that trip, um, I lied to a student. I looked him in the eyes and I lied straight to him. And so I need to confess this to you. We were driving to Cornerstone. Graham, it wasn't you. Don't worry. We were driving to Cornerstone and I'm driving there. I've never been. So I take my exit and my GPS very clearly says to turn. Miss it. Totally miss the turn. We keep driving. I'm like, I'll get the next one. Missed the next one. I'm like, I'll get the next one. I didn't. I missed it again. Missed three turns in a row. And the student in the front seat looked at me and he said, does that happen a lot? (laughs) He says, do you miss turns a lot? And I looked him right in his eyes and I said, no, it doesn't. That was the lie. (laughs) It happens all the time. I miss turns. You can ask my wife, Jessie. I miss turns all the time. If I'm driving and we are having a conversation of even a little bit of depth, I'm missing that exit. It's happening. Um, And I also, not only do I miss turns a lot, get lost a lot in Dallas. (laughs) Real tough for me. Um, And it's very easy for me to, one, get distracted, but two, to miss turns and get lost as I'm driving. And I know some of us feel that way a lot, whether it's driving through Dallas and missing turns um, or knowing what decision to make at a job, knowing what job to take, knowing what college to choose from, even knowing how to be a parent or how to be a kid, it's easy to feel lost. It's easy to even feel like we may have made a wrong turn here or there. And so we've been going through our studies on the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 12 today. And today we're gonna talk about how Jesus offers us a better path. The question we're gonna talk about today is how do we stay on the path of life that God would have for us and not get discouraged? How do we stay on the path even when we feel like we've made a wrong turn? How do we stay on the path and how do we endure through this life? That's what we're gonna talk about today. So we'll be in Hebrews 12. We'll be in verses one through 13. If you wanna go ahead and turn there. But before we go to chapter 12, we've got to touch on chapter 11 just for a second. Um, If you've been following with us in our dwell readings, we read Hebrews 11 this past Monday. And Hebrews 11, if you've never read it, it's one of the most famous passages in the Bible, and it's called the Hall of Faith. And Hebrews 11 is basically story after story of person after person who had faith in God and endured in their life through the difficulties and circumstances of this world. Um, We hear about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Moses and on and on and on. Uh, One of my favorite verses in this chapter is actually, it's verse 32, where the writer basically says, what more am I supposed to say? Like, I don't have enough time to talk about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. Like, he's just like, God did a lot of cool stuff through a lot of cool people, is basically how he ends chapter 11. And it's an amazing story. All these stories, they're people who had moments of ups and downs in their life. There are people who had moments where they relied on God really heavily, where they had faith in the Lord that he would bring them through things. They're also full of stories where uh, they got lost along the way. 
But the purpose of chapter 11 is to tell us that in the end, they ran their race well. Chapter 11 actually tells us that because of that, their faith was credited to them as righteousness. That's an, they're an encouragement to us as we look back at chapter 11, we see that, hey, it can be done. Following God can be done until the end. We can endure. So that's chapter 11. Chapter 12, God is going to tell us how we can run the race of life with endurance, like the people in the hall of faith did. He's gonna use them as an encouragement for us even when our lives have the ups and have the downs. So we're gonna start verse one here. We'll read verse one and two. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all the people from chapter 11, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So this passage equates our lives to a race that we're running. And our lives, as we know, just like we see in Hebrews 11, are full of these ups and downs. We have downhill moments in our life that are easy. We're coasting, we're living the dream, things are good. Those are the moments we celebrate. And then we have other moments in our lives where we've been going uphill for a long time. And it feels like the uphill is never going to stop and you just wanna give up. We've got those moments too. And enduring through these difficult moments of life is not easy, it's never easy. But this passage tells us that it is doable. The writer tells us that in order to run the race of life with endurance, we must focus our eyes on Jesus. Every person from the great cloud of witnesses uh, likely wanted to give up at some point, but through God's grace, they didn't. Um, and I believe they didn't do that for two reasons because they were looking at two things. One is the character of God. They knew God's character. They knew he was good. They knew he was loving. They knew he was kind to them, that he wanted the best for them. And because he had good character, he makes good promises. So they were looking to his promises, his promises that he would rescue them, his promises that he would redeem, that he would renew the earth that we're on even. And these promises that God made all throughout the Old Testament culminate in the person of Jesus Christ. So whether the people from the hall of faith knew it or not, the promise they were looking to was Jesus. Verse two here tells us that Jesus is both the author and the perfecter of our faith. I love that. Is the author, right? Jesus literally wrote the path to our salvation. Not only he wrote it, he came up with it, but not only did he write it, but he walked it himself. He walked the path that we could not walk, the path through suffering and the path that led all the way to the cross. And through this hardship and difficulty, he did it because no one else could, because we could not do it on our own. And as he walked that path, he perfected it for us. Another translation has the word, the completer of our faith, the perfecter of our faith, the completer of our faith. So Jesus did not just walk the path for us and then turn around and say, all right, now walk it just like that, exactly like I did and don't mess up. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus walked the path for us, completed it for us. He perfected it for us. So when he turns around, he says, hey, it's finished. I did it. Now come follow me. 
This verse tells us that he despised the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before him. So he endured this shame for joy on the back end of the cross. And that joy that was on the back end of the cross is us. It's the forgiveness of his people. So when Jesus was living his life and looking forward to the cross, he was looking past it because he knew what was gonna come on the back end of it. And it brought him joy. Thinking of us forgiven brought him joy. And the author says that because we have Jesus as the perfecter of our faith, we can run this race of life, that we can endure. And we know that because of this, our faith is perfected. Our eternity is secure because of Jesus. We can run our race well. But that's easy to say at the end of the race because we're still running here. We're still in this life enduring, running our race and trying to figure that out. And the hard part is Jesus in completing it for us uh, took on our sin for us, completed it, rescued us, but we still struggle with sin here on this earth. If we didn't struggle with sin, the race would be easy. We'd be running full speed. That's what the new earth is gonna be. We can look forward to that. But here on this side of the cross, we still have sin that we struggle with. And the author of Hebrews knows this. It's why he encourages us, verse one, if you see, he encourages us to lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely to us. I love that he uses the word weight because it acknowledges how heavy sin really is. Not just the sin that's inside us, but the sin of the brokenness of the world that attacks us as we're trying to live our life. Running our race with sin in our chest and on our shoulders is like trying to run with a thousand pounds weight on our backs. It's not doable. And there are so many things in this life that hold us down. Like I said, the outside, the sickness of this world, the death that happens because we live in a broken world, the sin that happens in relationship between each other is hard. But we also have the sin that sticks so closely to us that it is inside of us. Those are the sins that we know pretty well, right? That's the pride. That's the addiction, the, the ambition, the greed, the lust. We have those sins that stick so closely to us and some of them stick for years. And those sins are ready to show up at a moment's notice. And part of our battle on this life is to fight those sins, to throw those sins off, like this author says. And the only way we can do that is by focusing on Jesus. No one ever got any better by being told to get better. We can only grow out of our sin, fight our sin by looking at what Jesus did on the cross because it's his love for us that motivates us to fight against sin. When we understand that, when we see that in a moment where we're wrestling with temptation, we can look at our sin and know that God has more power over our sin than our sin has over us. As we navigate this life, we have to focus on Jesus as we do our best to fight those sins. Because some days you're gonna do really well. In a moment, you might ignore temptation. You might resist temptation and you might win in that moment. And that's a great thing that we honor God for. We're grateful to his grace in our lives there. But there's other moments where we're gonna to try to fight sin and we're gonna fall, we're gonna fail. And no matter if you have a good day with your sin or a bad day with your sin, you don't need any less of a savior on either of those days. You don't need a lesser version of Jesus on your good days. We always need a perfect savior. And so we have to focus on him. 
as I was naming those sins earlier, some of them may have stuck out to you guys. Maybe you struggle with something I didn't name. Um, most of us know kind of our one or two or three big ones uh, in our lives. Um, those are our constant struggles, right? Those are the ones that are always really ready to come to the surface. But our sin actually goes a whole lot deeper than just those ones that are on the surface, right? We know this. Our sin affects our motivations. It affects how we love, how we show up in relationships. It affects our idols, what we desire. And God's not just after those two or three sins that we can really readily name. He's after all of them. God goes for the jugular of our sin there, and it's not always easy when he does that. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's hard. And the writer of Hebrews meets us here. So he continues on. Verse 3, and I'm going to read through verse 11. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son who he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whose his father does not discipline? And if you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers, fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. This is important. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In order to run this race set before us with endurance, we need to know that God's discipline is for our good. Discipline is not a word that we love. It's not a word that we love to talk about because most of us associate discipline with punishment. It's, hey, I did something wrong. I deserve to get punished for it. I deserve to get disciplined for it. Um, that's how it went for me as a kid. That's probably how it went for most of you as a kid. It might be how you parent. When your child misbehaves, you have to punish them uh, to help them learn. And so the question is, is that how God works with us? When we sin, does God punish us? And the answer is no. Because of the gospel, when God looks at us, he sees Jesus, full stop. When you trust in Jesus and when you continue to sin, God does not punish you by putting things into your life so that you learn. That's not how he operates. He promises us that that is not how he works. Discipline here is not punishment. A, a better definition here of discipline is training. Discipline is training in righteousness. Uh, when someone is preparing to run a race, uh, they usually, usually don't just show up at the starting line and start running, um, unless you're super athletic and talented. Most people, when they run a race, have to train. They have to train for months and months before the race. Running that race without the necessary training would be torture. So in this life, God is training us to become like him. He's training us to be able to run this race of life without giving up. 
Verse four here says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Uh, The sin in mind here, just like in the rest of the book of Hebrews, um, it's not sin big picture. He's talking about a specific sin and he's talking about the sin of apostasy. It's the sin of saying that you believe in Jesus and then later denying him, later rejecting him. And the author, we, get, we have to know, is writing specifically to this group of Hebrew Christians here. And so apparently they're facing pressure to deny Jesus in their life. They're facing pressure to leave the faith, to reject Jesus because of what they're going through. But they're not yet to the point where they're being physically persecuted. That's the, you have not yet shed your blood. So they're being pressured, but not persecuted outright just yet. And so God, because he loves them, in order to keep them on the path of life, trains them through the difficult circumstances they're going through. He disciplines them. He trains them in that. And God's discipline is for their good here in their life because the most important thing in their life is that they finish the race believing in Jesus. It's the most important thing for us as well that at our time at the end of this world, we believe in Jesus's work for us on the cross. And this is meant to encourage the Hebrew Christians. He actually, in verse five, he quotes from a proverb that they would know really well, Proverbs three. He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son who he receives. God's treating them as his children by training them in this way. And he's treating us as his children by training us in this way as well, even when it's painful. We, we think about God's grace a lot. We talk about God's grace a lot. I mean, usually when we talk about God's grace, we think about him saving us, right? We think about him not holding our sins against us anymore. And that's true. It's 100% what God's grace is. Um, from a more human standard, when we think about God's grace, we oftentimes think about the positives, in life, right? That the bank account's full, kids are behaving well, they're doing good in school, your marriage is going well, your friendships, your relationships are going well. And those are all amazing things. They're all gifts from the Lord. They're all opportunities uh, for God to lavish his grace on us. But there's another side to grace that we don't often celebrate. I mean, it's a side that often seems too, too difficult and too dark to rejoice in. Um, it's, it's the grace, it's what Paul Tripp would call uncomfortable grace. And it's that grace where God gives you what you need, not necessarily what you want. It's where you go through something really tough and in that God reveals more of your sin to you so you can become more like him. It's when you endure trials of the brokenness in this world and you come out on the other side looking more like Jesus. It's uncomfortable, but it's, it's grace to us. And this type of grace is all over the Bible. Um, if you know the story of Joseph in Genesis, um, he just wanted to go inside and tell his brothers about some dreams he had. Um, and that ended up with him being a slave and being double-crossed by Potiphar's wife and Pharaoh's cupbearer for 20 years. But after he endured all that, God made him a prince. He made him second in command of Egypt. And that was because uh, Israel needed saving. God ended up lifting Joseph up after all that he had been through because now he was a man who could lead God's people. It even says what some intended for evil and what probably felt wicked to Joseph in a moment, God intended for good. 
in Psalm 66, the psalmist is, is praising God and he's thanking God for keeping Israel's foot up, for bringing them to a place of abundance. But it's not before God trained them through discipline. They say, you, O oh God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads and we went through fire and through water but to get to a place of abundance. It's uncomfortable grace. We, we see this no more clearly than in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is praying to the Father and he says, Father, if it's your will, please let this cup pass from me. But Isaiah 53 tells us that it was the Lord's will to crush him. And the cross of Jesus, ultimately what looks like the worst thing to ever happen in our world, brought about the greatest good for us. God is in the business of taking broken things and making beautiful things out of them. It's uncomfortable grace. And each of these instances proves to us that what verse 10 and 11 say is true. That for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. God loves us so much that he will take us on a path that we would never choose for ourselves. And it's the path that leads to him. It's the path that pulls us most closely with him. <laughs> I want to say this again, and I really want to land here because it's so important that I don't want in any way, shape, or form to say that bad things happen in this world because God is punishing us. Please do not hear that from me this morning. Uh, when a hurricane descends on a city, that is not God's judgment or God's punishment on that city. When a sickness befalls you or your family, that is not God's punishment to you. When there is a hurricane in your life, that's not God's punishment on you. We live in a broken world where those things happen because of sin, because of disease, because of death. And we live in this broken world that is crying out for redemption, as Romans tells us. But God's chosen to let us live in this broken world because he plans to use the difficulties of it to continue his work in us and to complete his work in us. So this means that those moments are not, those moments of difficulty, they're not an interruption of God's plan. They're not a failure of God's plan. But out of his love for us, they're a part of his plan. It would, it'd be far worse if this world was just broken and we just had to endure and grit our teeth and make it through. God's plan for us is so much more hopeful than that. It's so much more loving than that. Through our suffering, we get to look at Jesus' suffering. And our suffering makes us more into the image of Jesus. There are moments, I think, in each of our lives, we could all probably get up here and share a story and say, this is the worst thing that I've ever been through. And through it, God made me more like Jesus and he made me love himself, love him more. It was the closest to God I had ever been because I went through that. And I think we need to share those stories with each other. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this a lot in Mere Christianity. And he's got an example that's just phenomenal. And so I'm going to read it because it's that good because he's C.S. Lewis. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and, and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. 
But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abdominally and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here and putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself. God is creating something in you far more beautiful than you ever thought possible. He has promised to transform you and that happens through training. And that spiritual training is difficult, but you are not walking it alone. There are tons before you who have walked the path that you're walking. And there are tons of people sitting around you right now who are walking it as well. This is our cloud of witnesses. Joseph lost everything for years. We look at the story of Job where he lost his health and he lost his family. He had no idea why. Charles Spurgeon, one of the great preachers of our time, battled with depression and anxiety for years. There's a woman named Joni Erickson Tata who was paralyzed at age 18 and she's been in a wheelchair for 60 years. Each of these people went through trials that none of us could imagine. But they came out on the other side being more like Jesus, more in love with their Savior, and most importantly, bringing hurting people alongside them to the foot of the cross to meet their Savior. We have people in our midst, like I said, who've walked this path as well. Um, today, I'm really excited to share with you one of our students, MC Peterson, uh, has gifted us with her story. Um, and we've got a video of it. So I'd love for us to watch this video together. While my mom was in the hospital, I felt like my whole world just been shattered. And I wasn't angry at God, but I just, it, like you never think that your mom's gonna have cancer until she has cancer. So my name is MC Peterson. I'm 16 and I'm gonna be a junior at Trinity Christian High School. I have been at PCBC ever since I was born, grew up in the preschool ministry. Um, and my parents have been there, I think for about like 20 years now. I was baptized when I was seven and it was very early in life for me, but I think I really understood it. And I just had very like God loving parents. And around that time when I was in about first or second grade, my dad lost his job. That just totally reminded me that like, oh yeah, like this is not my control. It's completely in God's control. And so there's not, a whole lot I can do here other than pray. And I'm literally in like third grade. Um, and so then a few months later, he found a great job. Um, he does tech sales, so that's always a hard job to be in, but um, he found it. And so that just reminded me like, hey, like God, you're absolutely in control on this. And it may feel like you have left me, but like in truth, you've never left me and you're not going to leave me. So last year, last March, my mom got diagnosed with lymphoma. Before that, I was reading my Bible every day. I was praying, I was reflecting um, on what God has done for me. And in that moment, I was like, God, like I need you. I distinctly remember crying on the bathroom floor when my mom said, hey, I need you to cut my hair. <laughs> Sorry. I've never experienced something so hard in my life because um, it's just hair. 
and it's silly, but I felt like I was taking something from her, but um, my mom is such a beautiful woman and I felt like cancer was taking everything from us. Um, and so seeing, like crying on the bathroom floor with the scissors in my hand, like trying to make that first cut was so hard for me. Um, and eventually we did it we sobbed forever. Um, and I, at the time, had really, really long hair. It came down like past my waist. And um, around that Mother's Day, my mom was in the hospital. I decided that I wanted to donate to her. Um, and so I cut off like 14 to 15 inches of my hair, rocked a cute bob for the summer. My parents' connect group funded my hair be made into a wig for her. Um, and so just seeing them come around my family to do something like a little fun project for my mom was just so cool and to see again like how they surrounded us during that time and the chemo like really took a lot of out of her um and but like seeing her face and how excited she got like i think she cried when she opened the box there were so many people bringing us meals there were so many people praying for us and supporting us and i can say like God is so good because of how he has restored my mom. Like she's completely better now. Um, and my mom's such like a stubborn go-go-go person. And now she's like completely better. And she's like, all right, let's go. So she just got right back to it. Church is not four walls. It truly is God's people. Um, and seeing like, again, like how church provides meals and how they funded my mom's wig and everything. like. God's people are His people. They will come around you and they will love you and protect you. And it shows me like what a true church family looks like. Ever since, you know, growing up in preschool with Mr. Marty to now being with Morgan, it's just really cool to see how people will surround other people during hard times. And, and like you might feel alone with whatever you might be going through, but like people are there and they're very willing to reach out and help you, but literally the biggest thing you have to do is just ask sometimes. MC's, MC's story is such an encouragement to me. Um, her and her family have relied on God so much uh, during everything they've walked through during her mom's cancer diagnosis. Um, and you guys have come out on the other side with a faith that is beautiful. Um, with a faith that is a fragrant aroma to the Lord uh, and with a faith that I want to emulate. Um, when, when these things happen and when the brokenness of our world rears its head, there is an opportunity to be made more like Jesus. MC took that opportunity. Your family took that opportunity well. Um, and so did our church. Uh, we were able to come alongside them um, and, and love them like Jesus would. Um, MC, thank you for honoring us with your story, for sharing how God grew you, for how God changed you. Um, I want to share about 24 hours after we filmed MC's testimony video, uh, the Peterson family got some really hard news. Um, MC's 13-year-old brother, Pike, was diagnosed with leukemia. And, and just like MC said, you never think it's going to happen until it does. Um, this is not a punishment. This is the brokenness of our world showing up in a really hard way. 
Um, Pike has started chemo, um, and he's got a really long road ahead of him. Um, and as the body of Christ, we get to come alongside them. Uh, Petersons, I, I love you guys so much. Um, God has used your story and your faith to change me. Um, I love Jesus more because of how you love Jesus. And I know I'm not the only one in this room that can say that. There are so many people around our church who can say that. Um, MC, you look so much like Jesus. And Micah looks so much like Jesus. And I know more than any of us here, Pike is gonna look so much like Jesus. Uh, Pike, if you're watching, I love you. Man, we're with you. Um, you are preaching a better gospel with your life right now than any of us ever could. Um, we are with you and we are surrounding you. And Petersons, when you have the capacity to love Jesus and see Jesus, but not the capability, we'll be there to remind you. We will be with you. I would love to take a moment and, and pray for Pike right now, pray for this family. So if you guys would, please bow your heads. Let's pray. Um, Lord, we love you so much, um, God, and we trust you so much. Um, your word tells us in Psalm 46 that uh, you are a great helper in our time of need. Um, and God, we have need. Um, I pray that, God, you would surround the Peterson family. God, you would wrap Pike up in your love and in your peace. Um, God is the great physician and the great healer. Lord, we trust you and we ask for that. Um, Lord, we ask that you would heal Pike just as you healed Micah. Um, and God, in all this, help us to help us to honor you well. Help us to trust you and help us to love you even when it's hard. Father, be with us. Amen. Uh, Y'all, to close this morning, I, I wanna read the last two verses of this passage. Um, if you would, it's verse 12 and 13. It says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. In order to run this race set before us with endurance, we need to trust that God will comfort us. Uh, God knows how hard this life is. He knows as difficult as Jesus, he walked it. And he knows the needs of his children. He knows our emotions. He knows our fears. He knows our needs. He knows our idols. And he wants to free us into a life that is unburdened by sin. And getting there is really hard, but he promises to comfort us. He promises to lift our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees to make straight paths for our feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And we know that's true because on the cross, we had a savior with drooping hands and weak knees. His bones were put out of joint so that we could be healed. And God has given us a straight path to himself through the suffering of Jesus. And while we can walk that path, knowing that God knows our pain and knowing that he is walking alongside us. The hard things that you're going through now that you have gone through, that you will go through are not failures of God's character, of his promises, of his power, or of his plan. God has not turned his back on you and he never will because of Jesus. He loves you. He is with you and the shame of the cross holds nothing to the joy that was before Jesus from saving you and walking the path with you. That is the God that we serve.
He is good. He is light, and in him there is no darkness. He is worth trusting.